the labor market information field has made some really good strides in the last 10 years, mostly by the ability to uh, to spider uh, internet sites and look at job postings data and then be able to parse uh, parse keyworded skills out of those job postings that give us more of that real-time feel. Uh, unfortunately, a, a keyword does not a job description make. And so our ability to get a better understanding of, of, of a job profile that has multiple, multiple skills that we can translate in a transferable skills way with the kinds of skills that employers say they're looking for I think is sort of the holy grail that many of us are have have been pursuing, and, and I think it's the way that the business community is uh, would like to see things as well. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Business and workforce planning require one thing that is often in precious short supply, reliable information. There's talk as to whether the U.S. is currently in a recession. If so, what's going to be impacted and how? Who might benefit? People are said to be leaving California in droves for Texas and Florida, bringing their skills and their consumption with them. What might that mean for the Texas economy? The Federal Reserve just raised interest rates by three quarters of a point. If that cools inflation and slows down the economy, what will that mean for the Texas labor force? These are all questions with uncertain answers and are complicated by dozens of other variables that might confound even the most experienced business planner. But to even begin to analyze them, we need reliable data. So today, I'm joined by my favorite data guy, Rich Froschel. Rich is the senior labor market economist for Texas State Technical College and the former director of the Labor Market and Career Information Department of the Texas Workforce Commission. Now, many people here in the Lone Star State will also know Rich as an always interesting and, even though he's an economist, entertaining conference speaker about workforce demographics and business trends. In fact, in August, he will again be the keynote luncheon speaker at the Texas Association of Businesses Annual Employment Relations Symposium. He's also the author of several books on economics, including the forthcoming book, How Many is Enough? A Practitioner's Guide to Occupational Targeting and Supply Demand Analysis. I'll wait for the audio edition on that one, but welcome to Good Morning HR, Rich. Thank you, Mike. I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you. It's great to see you again. Likewise. So we're allegedly post-COVID, whatever that means, but the last two and a half years have been a roller coaster for the Texas economy and for workers in Texas. In 30 seconds, recap what's happened in the last two years uh, in, the, in the economy here. Well, I, I'm not sure I could do it in two hours, Mike, but all things <laughs> being equal, the uh, the te- uh, the COVID, uh, what we call the COVID-based recession in Texas was really a two-pronged kind of environment that really killed us because on top of the recession that was triggered by COVID and the reduction in, in, uh, uh, in the capacity in the economy as a whole is that the crash in oil prices really killed uh, the Texas export sector and our oil and gas sector. So it's a double whammy for the Texas economy. 
The good news is, and you know, we're we're not going to really explore the political side of this too much today. But the good news is that in Texas, we didn't shut down the economy as much as maybe some other states. A lot of our economy was able to squeak by, and uh, and so we we had a lot of production, we had a lot of uh, consumption going on for the folks. And the most interesting thing about this particular recession, which is makes it very different than any other recession we've ever had, is we put a lot of money in in people's pocket and. You know what happens uh, when you give somebody a bunch of money? They have a tendency to spend it. And that's exactly what happened in this recession. So as opposed to probably the last four or five recessions uh, that we've seen in this uh, in this century, one of the things that we we saw is increasing disposable personal income. And since there were no services to buy it on, people bought stuff and they bought stuff from all over the globe. And so we ended up with some supply chain challenges and uh, and a whole bunch of other things that have now intertwined to find us where we are, including inflation and labor shortages. Yeah, you're an economist. So this is one of the things that I get into arguments with my, I guess, more progressive friends. Um, pouring all of that money into the economy, you know, by saying, you know, money printer go burr. And putting, you know, and sending out checks to a lot of people who didn't need them uh, under both administrations. Um, that's got to drive inflation, right? Isn't that just economics 101? Yeah, it's certainly, uh, it was certainly a major contributor. And so what happened, what happens in almost every recession is that people don't have money in their pockets and they don't spend. So the government reaction is to turn around and help uh, consumers put money in their pockets so that they can keep the economy afloat. Well, that that it's not a bad idea early on, but the volume of dollars that ended up being pushed into the economy, not only the first wave, but clearly the second wave and the second wave of dollar and of dollar infusion came without any uh, without any data point to substantiate the need to put more money and stimulate the economy. So what we really did was covid reduced all the capacity in the economy. And then we threw a bunch of government dollars at it and uh, inflated inflated people's incomes. And they spent all that money and you drove inflation. So we really had uh, essentially a bloated economy that led to a lot of inflation. I'm, I'm still hearing from a lot of uh, employers that they're having a hard time finding people who want to work. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and that term, <laughs> and, I, and you look back in history and that every generation has complained that there's nobody who wants to work. So that's not a new concept. But do you think all that money that was poured into the economy changed individuals' expectations about what work is? Or why is it that nobody allegedly wants to work? What, do you, what, do you, what are you seeing in the data that suggests? Is that even true? Well, I, I agree with the first part of that statement, which is every generation views the subsequent generation as lazy and entitled and the like. And so I'm not sure I buy off on that, but I do definitely buy off on the fact that uh, that the born digital generation does look at, at, at work differently, at work-life balance, at what they value uh, with an employer. And so they are taking this time and this opportunity to revisit what they want to do with their lives and, and make decisions about uh, what jobs they take and whether they whether and to what degree they participate in the labor force. But uh, labor shortages, Mike, have been really an interesting phenomenon. And there's not one silver bullet that caused it and not one silver bullet that's going to fix it. And um, I have a list of probably eight or 10 things that I talk about routinely. Number one on that list was the infusion of a lot of those dollars that allowed people 
to take all the urgency out of participating in the labor market. You know, they had options and it wasn't just the dollars that went in the economy. It was the deferment of student loan debt, the deferment of rent payments, a lot of the other subsidies that came through federal government, uh, especially federal government uh, programs that allowed people to not only have that extra disposable income, but be a little more flexible with how they decided to come back and participate in the labor market when things did start to recover. And so what you're what you've seen now, and I believe we talked about this uh, offline a little bit, is labor force participation rates are still considerably lower than before the uh, the pandemic. Uh, it happens certainly with women in prime age because they ended up with uh, homeschooling and childcare responsibility, maybe some elder care responsibility. It's pretty hard to balance all of that and participate in the labor market as well. But another really interesting part of our labor force participation is prime age males have uh, they left the labor force during the pandemic and they have not returned at the rate that we would have expected them to. What is a prime age? What are we talking about there? Yeah, somebody in the technically on the ages of 22 to 54. So somebody in their prime working ages um, in the 70s, uh, the labor force participation rate for prime labor force people was in the mid 80s. Uh, and now we're down uh, in the in the low 70s. So you've seen a very significant decrease uh, in the male labor force participation rate. So how are they paying their bills? Well, that's a good question. And uh, the when we had all this excess government money, it made a big difference. There's been some housing consolidation, you know, multiple generational kinds of things. Uh, they're not spending as much money. They don't have the same they don't have the same uh, desire to purchase and spend as maybe previous generations, consumption, less of a consumption generation. But it's still a $64,000 question. All that given the side is, you know, at some point in time, and I think many of us who are thinking about labor force participation, we say at some point in time, everybody has to eat. And in order to eat, you're going to have to work at some point. So I think most of us believe that labor force participation rates will rebound across the board, uh, but it's a little slower than most of us expected. So let's define that because you hear about labor force participation rates and then you hear about unemployment. And those are two really different things. I think they may overlap, but we just this, this describe when we're hearing about government numbers on those two issues, what are they talking about? What's the difference? So unemployment is a function of, of the civilian labor force. So the civilian labor force is made up of those people who are employed and those people who are unemployed. Well, in order to be employed, you have to actually be in the labor force. And to be in the labor force, it means you either have a job or you're, you want a job and you're actively looking for a job. So one of the interesting things uh, when we start looking at the data is there are a lot of people that say maybe they want a job, but they're, if they're not actively looking for a job, they don't get classified as being unemployed. And so uh, when we start looking at, at the unemployment numbers, especially with lower participation rates, there is a segment of the population that we are just not counting any place in the process. Hmm, interesting. So what is maybe nationally and then compare it to whatever's going on really in Texas, what is, what's the labor market situation? Uh, I mean, I'm hearing from employers all the time that they can't find enough people to do the jobs that they need them to get done. Where are there shortages? What's causing them? And then maybe how is Texas different than what we see on a, on a broader scope on, in the U.S.? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, is that the interesting thing about this particular recession is that the industrial structure of Texas, like our our, our, uh, 
our savings and loan, our banking, our real estate system, our, our entire um, industrial structure, nothing was really different. Nothing changed. Nothing blew up. We just took capacity out of it. And so if you'll think back, uh, maybe February of 2020, uh, the unemployment rate was down in the low threes. There were labor shortages everywhere. And you fast forward, say, to today, the unemployment rate is down in the low fours. But the same industries and the same occupations, especially, that we had shortages in before, those are back. In fact, it's really interesting, Mike, if you look at the, at the uh, uh, job postings by occupation, say, in February of 2020, and you look at those, you know, say, the top 20, and you look at the top 20 uh, current occupations that have the most job postings, the lists are almost identical. It's like 17 out of 20. So the same things that were in demand before the recession are back, uh, are back today. A lot of those are things that you'll recognize. A lot of them are in IT-related uh, professions. And of course, the pandemic did nothing but accelerate the demand for IT-related skills. They're also in construction and, uh, and especially trade construction, which we saw a lot of and is very valuable or important here to the Texas economy. We see a lot in the healthcare area. You know, the, the pandemic just really burned out a lot of healthcare uh, uh, people and also brought down the capacity in our largest healthcare sector, which is ambulatory healthcare. And that's starting to ramp back up uh, a little bit, but the shortages are very significant there, especially in, tech, in uh, technical healthcare fields and nursing. Uh, and then one of the biggest areas that has been emerging over the last several years has been the whole logistics and warehousing and transportation sector. So as, as people don't go out shopping and they call Amazon and then Walmart and Target and they, they're buying stuff online, it has to come from somewhere and somebody has to transport it. So the fields of logistics, manufacturing, uh, warehousing, all that have really continued to grow here in Texas. You keep using that fancy economist word, capacity. Uh, and I think capacity, what you mean is the ability to, uh, the availability of labor to execute and do whatever needs to be done to deliver product or service. Is that what you're talking about capacity? In some way, we just we just talk about capacity in a more generic term, which is uh, the, the ability to produce a certain level of output. So manufacturing capacity is is, uh, you know, do you have enough workers and equipment to generate the level of, of output that you need in the labor force side is do you have the available skilled and unskilled labor to meet the demand for labor? So, yeah, capacity works on both sides. Interestingly, on the uh, on the on the labor side, the lack of capacity is this essentially another way to say labor shortages. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 56 and enter the keyword economics. That's E-C-O-N-O-M-I-C-S. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Rich Rochelle. So, 
in trying to fill positions, a lot of employers, there's, and there's a lot of conversation in the HR world around, you know, we require a degree for this job. And I still see a lot of employers who are insisting on a degree. You know, they don't even care what degree, just a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And you could have you could have obtained that bachelor's degree 20 years ago and it makes you qualify for this job. And it could have been as something, you know, you know, philosophy or basket weaving or, you know, whatever. And, you know, which may have nothing to do with the job. But as long as you got that degree, that's what we want. And then I'm hearing more employers who are trying to figure out how do we hire for skills and not just for those pieces of paper? How do we do assessments? Uh, are there certifications and can we trust what those certifications really mean? Um, what are you seeing in the numbers? Is is, are, is there anything to suggest? I know this is an area you focus on a lot as far as, you know, getting the labor we need in the right places. Uh, what's going on uh, in that area from, you know, a macro perspective as far as the data says? So you probably know more about this than I do, Mike, but in the grand scheme of things, let me bridge the last question with this one. And that is when we start talking about labor shortages, uh, during the height of the pandemic, we had about 2.2 jobs for every unemployed person. Today, if you look at those numbers, we have about two and a half, almost two and a half uh, um, uh, jobs for every unemployed person, right? So you're talking about some very serious labor shortages. And what happens during labor shortages is people start getting a lot more creative. The business community starts getting a lot more creative as to where they find their labor pool. And so... Instead of looking for those pink squirrels and people and purple unicorns that we talk about in the HR world, right? We start getting a little more creative with with uh, maybe formerly uh, marginalized populations. So we look at uh, at uh, felons that have come through vocational programs, uh, some very successful programs uh, in in truck driving, for example, uh, where you're taking uh, taking felons, putting in truck driver positions, um, and so you're starting to dip into some of these some of these pools. Uh, that um, that we that we need that we because <laughs> there is nothing else. So what what does that mean? So if if you're starting right off the top and this job requires a bachelor's degree, now you're limiting to the 33, 34% of the state as a whole that is bachelor's degrees. Nobody else counts. Well, you're automatically right off the top starting to limit your uh, capacity to fill available jobs. And so I think the skills-based hiring movement is one driven by the labor shortages and people start saying well, where am I going to find that labor? And if I'm using these artificial credentials, and I think we all know that when we start talking about the bachelor's degree, for example, it's it's simply a, an easy proxy for employers to say, oh, yeah, you have a bachelor's degree. Surely you have problem solving skills and creativity and all these. Surely you have those because they come with the sheepskin. And we make that assumption. But uh, but once we start getting into trying to find workers in a labor shortage situation, that is really no longer a tenable option. So we've gone into this skill-based hiring. It's actually led by, uh, by uh, our major consulting firms and, and technology saying, if you've got the skills and you can do the job, we're, we're going to be interested in you. And it's starting to creep into other aspects of the, of the population. And, and, and let me add one other thing. And as we get into more skills-based hiring, it also is helping this DEI effort. So if, if you've got a lot of your population that are in... Um, uh, that, are, that are minority populations or non-included populations for some for some reason, and you're using that bachelor's degree as another artificial filter, you're not opening up jobs for those folks. So by eliminating the bachelor's degree, for example, as a uh, as a filter, what you're doing is opening up that pool and becoming more inclusionary in how you recruit and where you recruit. 
And that's actually a, a topic, uh, both of those are topics at the uh, TAB's Employment Relations Symposium. There's a round table on where to go find work that, or go to find people in underrepresented populations that you haven't considered before. And uh, there's a, an hour long uh, round table just talking about uh, hiring former offenders, how to effectively say and safely do that. Uh, including with uh, one of the panelists is Cherry Garcia, who's uh, out of Dallas and owns uh, Cornbread Hustle, which is a uh, a firm, a staffing firm that does nothing but put former uh, state prison inmates and federal prison inmates into jobs. And so it's going to be; those are both going to be really interesting topics. And, I, and if I remember right, to right after your your luncheon speech, it's probably a good spot for me to to say that colleges like mine at Texas State Technical College are very interested in understanding the skills in the labor market. And so uh, I'm involved uh, with uh, with uh, Michael Bettersworth and some folks at at Skills Engine to create a, a very robust skills library to use as a common skills library to help us translate the needs of employers at the skill level with the kinds of uh, competencies that we should be teaching to maximize employment uh, employability potential for our students. And so this whole this whole skills-based hiring, if you're going to pull it off, you're going to need some kind of instruments that allows you to profile jobs and individuals and, and, and thread them together at the skills level. And TSDC and our skills engine folks are doing a, a really interesting job of uh, creating tools that allow us to do that. That's interesting because uh, I'm an officer for the State Chamber of Commerce, the Texas mm-hmm. Association of Business, and I'm on the board of the local Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce. And the conversations we're having in both places are that the information we get from workforce development and from other groups is always such a lagging indicator. What's, what training we need by the time it's that training's made available through the community college system or other systems that employers have moved on. They found they've solved that problem. And are, so how do you do that? How do you gather that data? And maybe you haven't figured it out yet in real time and put the training in place quickly so that, that the needs of the current labor market are met, not last year's labor market. What, how does that work? Well, let me go. Let me go one better, and that is, as more of our, uh, as more of our, uh, the economy gets more diverse and more technologies come into play. A lot of the labor market information that we use on occupational titles really doesn't even suffice to explain what demand really is. And so, you know, we'll have a job title like computer programmer in our standard occupational classifications, and that tells us absolutely nothing about the actual skill sets that are associated with that. Now we've made a, the labor market information field has made some really good strides in the last ten years, mostly by the ability to uh, to spider uh, internet sites and look at job postings data, and then be able to parse uh, parse keyworded skills out of those job postings. It gives us more of that real time feel. Uh, unfortunately, a, a keyword does not a job description make, and so our ability to get a better understanding of 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 a job profile that has multiple multiple skills that we can translate in a transferable skills way with the kinds of skills that employers say they're looking for, I think is sort of the holy grail that many of us are have have been pursuing. And, and I think it's the way that the business community is uh, would like to see things as well. Cool. So I think nationally, we've got inflation at 9%. And I think wage inflation, at least nationally, is around 4%. So what would you tell an employer who's having a hard time finding talent? Can we afford to keep raising wages? <laughs> um, 
and then when we hit a recession or things return to you know some baseline of normal, we're stuck with higher wages, and we've got and we have to raise everybody's salaries for you know for equity purposes. Or uh, what would you tell an employer? When do we pull that trigger? Or how long do we hold off? And and what do we do? Keep pirating each other's workers until we exactly. have a wage price spiral that never ends, right? Right. Twenty percent raise. Twenty percent raise. Twenty percent raise. Yeah. Right. So the. Uh, it's it's actually a little worse than that because the produ- the uh, the producer price index the cost to employers uh, for materials is up in the eleven percent range and so last uh, last month the, the the June year over year wage increases was around five point one percent and that still means that real wages were down four percent relative to the CPI relative to inflation wow. so it's a huge challenge there is no doubt that when you start looking at inflation that a huge component has to do with energy. Right. And so uh, the, 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 the cost of refined product uh, has rippled its way through almost every aspect of, uh, of the economy. And it's I, I, I don't have the exact number, Mike, from the last time I looked at this, but it was around 55 percent increase in refined product uh, that when we start looking at consumers buying things online it has to be delivered. What's the cost of that? Um, it has to do with people uh, going to work and operating the regular their you know their regular workday. The the cost of fuel has made a huge difference in inflation, um, and I'm not sure that an individual employer can do anything about that. Um, what I can what I can tell you is that from a labor force standpoint, what we've seen what we've seen certainly with the younger generation is it's it's about money at a certain level. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, youth ages 16 to 19 have had declining labor force participation rates for 20 years. And it's mostly because as the cost of higher education has risen, students just don't believe that getting a summer job is going to do anything to help uh, you know, offset their college costs. But this year, we've actually had an uptick, a fairly significant uptick in the 16 to 19 participation rate. And what that the, the reason for that we've we've seen is that kids are starting to say, well, that's enough money to get me to be interested in, in working. So I think what we're starting to see in the labor market is as wages have started to rise, you're going to get to a level where people are going to say, OK, that's enough money for me to participate in the labor market. Uh, we call that actually the reservation wage. Anybody that's really interested in reservation wage can look at the uh, the New York Federal Reserve's uh, uh consumer expectations survey. And it's the price at which you have to be able to, to pay in order to get people to participate in the labor force. Kind of another interesting concept. But I think at some point, what we're seeing, especially with the born digital generation, is once they've got enough money, uh, now you're starting to look for more important things that are causing them to quit and that would cause them to say to stay. And a lot of that has to do with culture and environment and brand and the opportunity to learn uh, and the opportunity to grow. Um, McKinsey just finished a very interesting survey. And you look at the top three or four of the reasons why people left their last job. Um, only one of them had to do with compensation. The rest of them had to do with the, the ability to learn and grow, learn new things on the job, uh, have respect for their employer in terms of brand culture and the like. And so there are things that you can do from a management standpoint to not only attract, but retain workers that don't have anything to do necessarily after a certain level with compensation. And so we all went remote in March of 2020 and some employers like us, I mean, I, I owned are. an office. Here we are. I owned an office. Yeah, right. I own an office building or I did. And it was full of my employees and sent everybody home and it sat empty for a year and a half. And I, 
I just this spring sold the building because yeah. we're not going back. Um, and I've got employees in places I never thought I would have employees. I mean, you know, all my employees were within 30 minutes of, uh, you know, central Fort Worth at one time, and now they're spread out all over. So what is, what do you think the effect of remote work is going to be, um, on, on the labor force? Cause now, you know, for many jobs, an employer in Texas isn't limited to, looking at what's a, what the workforce is available. Certainly, if, if, if I've got to put tab A and slot A physically, you got to be here. But if it's digital work, if, it, if I'm sitting in front of two or three computer monitors all day, I can do it anywhere. So are you, are we, is it early enough in that cycle to see uh, an, any discernible impacts on, on labor markets? That's a really great question. And, and, and I don't think anybody knows yet. I don't know whether you're as far as far on as a, uh, as a, uh, Apple and Elon Musk saying everybody's got to go back in the work, uh, everybody go back in, into the workplace versus people that are saying, no, we've distributed everybody and we'll never go back to the workplace. We did open up that Pandora's box. I don't think there's any way that we all go back into the office. Um, but I think what we're starting to see, and Mike, again, you probably know this better than I do, is rather than the focus on remote work or work at home, is there's going to be a continued focus on flexible work environments, right? So even if you have to put, uh, you know, tab A into tab B, at some point in time, is there a way that you can set up a job so that you can only do that four days a week at the office and the fifth day you're at home taking uh, customer service calls or some kind of flexible work environment? And I think that's one thing that will stay with us after the pandemic is an emphasis on, is there a way that we can be more accommodative in terms of flexible work scheduling? Um, I, I personally on the belief, when you look at the data, what we see is there's not near as many people working from home on a permanent basis as uh, I, I think anecdotally we believe there are. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics look at those people that, that are working at home and it's less than, less than 18% or something like that. Um, on, a, on a full-time basis. But this extra flexibility uh, in a work schedule, I think is really important. And I think that's a lesson that employers are going to le learn and practice going forward. So the effect of, and I mentioned in the opening, people leaving California, high taxes, uh, a lot of business, you know, businesses are moving to Austin, Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, and other places in Texas because of the low regulations uh, relative to California. What's that doing to, to our, I mean, is that significant enough of an impact on our uh, labor market to either, you know, drive more demand? Uh, is, it a, is, it, is it a solution that creates a problem? I mean, people showing up, so we got new labor, but then they, they need to consume stuff like housing and food and stuff. And so they, they, they drive inflation. So how does, how does that, all these Californians coming to Texas affect the labor market? Well, heck, Mike, I thought they were coming for the heat. Isn't that why everybody comes <laughs> to Texas? Uh, it's only 109 today. So is that all yeah. it is? You know, um, I'm kind of an interesting person to ask because uh, I was born in California and uh, I, I did all my secondary education in California. And when I came to Texas, I realized that I was in God's country and haven't left uh, since. <laughs> But an interesting part of that question is that in any economic development scenario, you're trying to attract population because population gives you a, a stronger labor force. And then the consumption, as you mentioned, of both the population and the labor force allows you to drive more economic activity. And that creates a more robust economy, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when you look at a lot of states, I'd much rather be in Texas position than, say, New York or California, where you have people leaving for whatever reason uh, they're leaving. 
Um, does it put extra pressure on, on the housing market, especially where we've had uh, so little supply relative to demand and those outside dollars coming in willing to bid up the price of real estate? Yeah, it does create some, some significant uh, supply demand bottlenecks that we're all dealing with. But in the grand scheme of things, um, having more civilian labor force um, to bring their productive capacity with them, right, and help drive our economy is the goal. I think I think every state government would say, yeah, give us all of those people. I don't care whether they come from California, Alaska, New York, whatever it is, you know, bring them to Texas and we'll put them to work here. And uh, and, and that's that's a good thing for us. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I'm going to ask you, and I told you I wasn't going to do this. I wasn't going to, I told you I wasn't going to do this, but pull out your crystal ball and inflation at 9% and maybe we're in a recession, we're not. Where do you think we are in six months to 12 months uh, in, in the Texas economy based on what data you have now and what our historic trends have been when we're in similar situations? So that's a really tricky question since tomorrow we'll find our second quarter GDP number and we'll know technically whether we're in a recession or not. Um, and and what, what's interesting about that is if we have a positive GDP print or an, a positive GDP number tomorrow, it kind of starts the clock all over again. So then in order for us to be in a recession in the, in the last part of the year, you'd have to have a negative third quarter and then a negative fourth quarter. So uh, how we defi- how we technically define recession and what's going to happen is kind of going to raise its ugly head here over the next uh, several months. But I don't have a crystal ball, and I try not to make too many projections that I can't substantiate in the data, uh, which makes me a whole lot less fun than I might want to ordinarily be. Uh, I don't see a, I don't see technically a recession in Texas, uh, and I'm not sure I see one uh, nationally. I do see a slowdown, obviously, in the economy. Certain sec- major sectors of the economy affected by interest rates, housing, and uh, and and autos uh, will be significantly affected by the significant rise in interest rate. But the interesting uh, damper on that is that we've taken so much capacity out of the economy already. We're not like we're going from full capacity. So I don't know whether you tried to buy a car lately, but it's not a lot of cars on the lot uh, to move in. People are not buying cars because they're simply not available. So we already took some of the capacity out artificially through the uh, through the slowdown, and so uh, taking interest, uh, having the interest rate rise is going to suck some of the purchasing power out of the economy, but maybe not as much as it would in previous uh, in previous recessions and recovery periods. The one thing it is going to do is people have started to spend down all that extra disposable income they had. And they're starting to borrow, which means they're going to they're going to be interest rate sensitive. So it may affect people's interest and willingness to borrow in terms of credit card related debt. You're starting to see uh, purchasing. You're starting to see purchasing power go back to below pre-pandemic uh, levels. And I think the interest rates will put a damper then on on credit card spending, which will reduce some the consumer uh, component of the uh, consumer component of the GDP. I do want to say something pretty interesting, I think, about that first quarter GDP print. Some people have said, oh, we had a negative GDP. And so that's the first rung down in terms of, uh, of recession. But when you look at the components of GDP, what we saw was consumer spending was actually positive. Fixed business investment was actually positive. The two biggest components of GDP were actually quite positive. I think collectively they were like 3.1% in the positive side. What drug down the uh, the GDP number for the first quarter 
was inventories were way down. And a lot of that was front end loaded back in the fourth quarter of 2021. And uh, government spending was significantly down. Uh, And the value of exports because the dollar were actually down. So exports, government spending really was what drove the first quarter GDP down. So I don't believe that I, I I'll go out on my crystal ball here, Mike. I don't believe that this quarter you'll see a negative GDP print, GDP print, uh, which means I think it'll be a positive, be a small number, but I think it'll be positive. And um, and I see slow growth through the end of the year, uh, but I also don't think uh, you'll see recession. And then I also believe, while I'm reading the crystal ball, is that I think you'll see inflation start to moderate down in the five and six percent by the time you get to the end of the year and labor shortages starting to mitigate by the first quarter of next year. Um, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of crystal ball. Don't hold me to that. But if I, had to, uh, if I had to look at the tea leaves and see what they said, that's where I'm headed. Well, I'll get you back on in January or February of next year and, and hold you accountable for that. You know what they say about economists. You know, we've projected nine of the last five recessions. So uh, <laughs> it's not like we have a great reputation of being able to do that. Well, I appreciate you trying. And thank you for being on the show. That's all the time we have, but I really enjoyed it and always look forward to talking to you, Rich. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to seeing you in San Antonio. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.